Hey everyone, Ryan here. Just a quick clarification on today's episode. We recorded this episode during the height of the Black Lives Matter protests, and I noticed as I was recording it that I sort of danced around the subject. So I just want to be absolutely clear where I stand, and that is that Black Lives Matter and police reform is necessary now. It's just as necessary now as it was during the time of the events in the movie that we talk about today. And on another note, um, the guest in today's episode reached out to me and expressed interest in coming on the show. So if you would like to do something similar, I would love to have new guests on the show. If you have a movie or a television show or a book that you want to talk about, feel free to email me at our email address, poppsych101 at gmail.com, or direct message me on Twitter, and I'd love to talk to you. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to Pop Psych 101. I am licensed therapist Ryan Engelstad, and I am thrilled to have with me today a Pop Psych 101 listener. Abigail, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, no, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to see how this goes. Yeah, me too. So so this was something that I was just a, a very pleasant surprise. You reached out to me on Facebook Messenger. I believe you're also a member of our Facebook group. Yes, I am. Yes. Wonderful. Um, and you uh, introduced yourself. You are a nurse uh, working in uh, a prison system. Yes, I work in California. I don't want to give away too much information, but yes. No, so no, you... no, that's fine. Okay, great. Um, and fair to say you uh, specifically work with mental health or is there is there medical aspects to your work as well? It's a good combination of both, I will say. Sure. I'm sure. Well, yeah, I'm sure in a prison system that that's, that's often the case. Mm-hmm. Um, great. So thank you so much for reaching out to me today. You know, I want to, before we start the episode, um, so today is June 10th, we're recording. And obviously, um, there's a lot going on in the world and in the country. So um, some of those issues are going to have parallels to what we're talking about today, but by no means do we expect to um, solve or even, frankly, fully address any of them. We're going to be talking specifically about a movie and the applications to uh, to our society and to our you know our prison system today. That's why Abigail is on the show because we're talking about a prison movie, one of the best ones, or probably the best one. I, I might hazard a <laughs> guess that this might be the best one. So if you haven't figured it out, we're talking about Shawshank Redemption. So, and just before we start today's episode, a quick trigger warning. If you don't know, Shawshank Redemption does depict police violence, assault, as well as sexual assault. So those topics will at least be referenced. So if that's an issue for you, um, feel free to skip this episode um, and we, we, our feelings will not be hurt. But if in any case, thank you, Abigail, for so much for coming on and we're going to take a quick break and then we will jump into the Shawshank Redemption. The Shawshank Redemption is a 1994 American drama film written and directed by Frank Darabont, based on the 1982 Stephen King novella Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption. It tells the story of banker Andy Dufresne, played by Tim Robbins, who was sentenced to life in Shawshank State Penitentiary for the murders of his wife and her lover, despite his claims of innocence. Over the following two decades, he befriends fellow prisoners, including Ellis Red Redding, played by Morgan Freeman, and becomes instrumental in a money laundering operation led by the prison warden, Samuel Norton, played by Bob Gunton. Uh, William Sadler, Clancy Brown, Gil Bellows, and James Whitmore also appear in supporting roles. So we are talking about Shawshank Redemption today. So Abigail, you reached out to me um, 
you are a nurse. Um, give me your, what's your specific title? Sure. So I'm a registered nurse with the county, um, the county prison system. Us specifically, we're considered correctional health nurses, and that can range, as far as our responsibilities, it can range from doing mental health or like physical, medical, surgical, as we like to call it. Um, A lot of community health, like there's almost, we can almost do a lot of things, a lot more than people imagine as prison nurses. I bet. Well, yeah, and and it's so interesting, right? Because unfortunately, and obviously time has changed in the prison system, but none of what you do probably with uh, the inmates is represented in this movie at all. Oh, no, if anything, there's it touches real briefly on yeah. like the health care that the inmates get. There's yes. that one snip, but we can delve into that in a little bit. Yeah, they sort of reference the infirmary, but it's very vague as to what even goes on there. Very. Yeah. Um, great. So, so again, thank you so much for joining us, and I'm really excited to jump right in. So, obviously, this is a very long movie. Um, we're not going to hit on every single plot point, but I'm really excited to talk about sort of the various ways that the way prison is is you know depicted. I think this is based on the 1940s. Is that right? I want to say uh, 19 like like towards end of 1940s, and I think like it ends around 1960s. So it does yes. depict that that era pretty well. I have to say. Yes. So, yeah, uh, that's right. I missed it in my notes. So 1947. Um, yeah. And then basically 20 years later. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So it's a really interesting time um, in the country. And then we also, you know, over the course of the movie, touch on a lot of different other things that also are applicable uh, for us today. So as we jump in um, and, you know, I'm really curious to kind of get some of your experience with this. We open on the scene of the sort of law um, situation, how. Andy Dufresne ends up getting um, sentenced to two life sentences. Um, mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting. So my, my wife's an attorney, so and she would have some things to say about sort of uh, how the judge, um, you know, sort of references Andy's cold demeanor. And that's something that's sort of referenced throughout the film. This is just a guy who's, you know, and and really we, we don't ever really see him experience a lot of intense emotion no matter what he's going through through which is an interesting thing that we'll talk about as he experiences various traumatic events through the course of his time at Shawshank but Mm -hmm. you know he gets in part sentenced to two life sentences basically because the judge is like you don't seem very remorseful that's enough for two two life sentences even though the evidence is I don't know if I would say suspect but they they make a pretty good case Mm -hmm. so so I'm curious you know how much as a nurse do you get exposed to the the legal aspect of stuff. I mean, are, are you only purely interacting with them, you know, once they are, um, you know, I, I was going to say admitted, but that's more like a hospital I know. Um, framework. <laughs> no, I, I get the language confused too. So I get it. Yeah. Um, as far as my involvement in the legal aspect of it, at most, it's just documenting all this, the care that I provide, but yeah. nothing in regards to that scene in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, because it's interesting because, you know, I imagine as you are talking uh, with the inmates about their, um, you know, various things that they have going on, is legal, you know, complaints or legal struggles? Because this is what a running joke throughout the movie okay. where everybody says that they're innocent, right? Uh-huh. Um, is that something, how, how common of an issue is that at, as you're, you know, working with the inmates regarding their mental health? Oh, my gosh. It's funny that you mentioned that because 
I come in and, you know, it's a blank canvas. I, yeah, there's so many, so many inmates, it's hard to really identify what they're committed for. Mm-hmm. And so they are like on their best behavior when, you know, I see them, I give them their medication. And then when I have some downtime, that's where I see, oh, you're here because you did this crime. Right. So when, when like Red and them, come in, try to go on parole and say that, you know, I've changed stuff like that. Like yeah, he has a little speech. Yeah, he, he does. And so par- like me being kind of like fresh meat, you can almost believe it. Mm. Yeah. So, so everyone kind of wants to convince you of whatever they believe about why they're there, whether it's the fact that they're innocent or, um, or the fact that they don't belong there and just should be should go home. We see a lot of the sort of immediate interactions as Andy and a couple of other, it's funny that you said fresh meat. I think they call them fresh fish. Fresh fish, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so the new inmates when they are, are brought in, um, and this feels like a very sort of stereotypical scene. I don't know if this is actually what happens. So I'm sure it doesn't happen this way anymore. But literally the prisoners all, I should say inmates, all line up um, you know, around the sort of fence as the new inmates are brought in on the bus, literally taunting them and really just setting the tone for this. This is not a safe place for you. Um, oh, and yeah. the Red and the other inmates are taking bets on, you know, who's going to be the first one to crack. Mm-hmm. And, you know, unfortunately, someone does sort of have an emotional reaction. I guess that's what they're talking about, just sort of the first person to cry, which seems really... I mean, it's sad for me as a therapist. That's like, because I'm seeing, this is a normal emotional response to being in this environment. And I'm sure you see that as well, Mm -hmm. right? I see it. I'm sure you see that sort of range of initial reactions. You said there's initially people come in um, sort of calm, but I'm sure that shifts pretty quickly in some cases. Yeah, you know, you get a huge variety of people, whether they come in intoxicated or some Mm, aggravated assault case. I will say in the times where I have, um, see, here I go again, I'm getting confused with my language. When when they're getting admitted or when they're in booking, sure. that's when, you know, you have to get a feel of like what their, what their psych history is, what their, um, their mental health, their physical history is. And a lot of them would like dumb it down, play it off, like there's nothing wrong with them. And then that's where my nursing assessments come in. And if they're not going to tell me what's going on, then I have to figure it out for myself. And then Mm. eventually I will see things unfold. Right. Yeah. And and unfortunately, uh, a lot of things unfold very quickly for some of the uh, new inmates. So we see, um, and I'm going to be mad that I don't have his name in front of me because that's the same thing that happens uh, with the inmates where um, one of the new inmates breaks down, you know, has a, has an emotional reaction to his first night there as red is sort of narrating, like sort of everyone, what, you know, kind of starts to realize the reality of the situation that they're in. Mm-hmm. Um, he's gets really upset and the sort of tyrannical captain Hadley, um, you know, essentially, I mean, I hate to say it beats him to death. I mean, that doesn't happen right then and there. I guess they bring him to the infirmary, but we find out the next morning that he, he died did die from his head injuries. Yeah. And to see that as the sort of the, the introduction to a prison is 
a really stark reminder of there are different rules here. Oh yeah, totally. I will right? say because this guy didn't do anything. I mean, he he mm-hmm. was upset, and that was treated as if he were, I don't know, making terroristic threats or anything that could be worse from that from behind bars. It was just really. It's still. It's hard to watch. I will say, as trying my best to relate that incident to how it works now, yeah. at least at least for California, anytime a officer has to use some sort of like um, force against mm-hmm. an inmate, a report does have to be filed, and it's the supervisor, it's the staff's like immediate supervisor that writes the report. So I will say we've come a long way in yeah. ensuring the safety of the inmates. Yeah, that's good. And and it was interesting. So I, in, in terms of like, I have a couple of fun facts about the the um, recording, I should, the, the filming of this movie. So Clancy Brown, who played Captain Hadley, I guess was offered the opportunity to to talk to other um, uh, prison guards to kind of get a sense of, you know, what's your experience like? You know, what, what kind of things have happened for you? And mm-hmm. he turned it down. So he didn't talk to anyone. He just took the mindset of this guy is evil, which I thought was so interesting that he didn't oh. necessarily want to base his performance on any specific person or specific, you know, reality. He just wanted to take it from, you know, this guy has basically no empathy and no um, real interest in the the difficulties of the people that he's in charge of, okay. which, you know, I think some people, do have that belief about, you know, whether we're talking about today, you know, police or whether you're talking about uh, prison guards, that people do, I think, get that wrong impression about the people that do this work. And I'm sure you've seen that as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, way before I became a correctional health nurse, I did have that mindset where, you know, the deputies and the, and the facilities, you know, they're very tough on the inmates. And obviously they do have to maintain some sort of order. Oh, of course. They do it without, you know, excessive force whatsoever. Like they're really good about it now. I I will say I'm pretty surprised that the deputies I work with, they're actually like really chill. Mm. They're super nice. And they do show respect for the inmates. Like I have nothing bad to say with, about my staff at the very least. That's great. And look, obviously we're, we're not acknowledging that. Um, yes, there are uh, bad police. There are oh, bad prison guards and terrible things have and continue to happen in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. But I think this is an example where, um, you know, obviously whether it's Stephen King or the director wanted to quickly show you kind of how, bad and scary and just different your life is going to be when you get into a place like Shawshank. I know. So, so yeah. And, and, you know, like you were sort of saying before, you know, when people have this sort of initial, um, you know, acclimation to their, to their situation that I'm sure that that takes a lot of forms, but we see, as we were talking before, you know, Andy, and I think red even refers to him as as a tall drink of water um, as he's walking in is, you know, sort of oddly calm almost the entire time he's incarcerated. Um, you know, he's able to, to talk to the guards in a way that his, uh, you know, fellow inmates almost, you know, discourage him from doing. Mm. Um, he kind of works his way up the system. Oh, yeah. Um, and this is all going on despite the fact that he is, you know, at times um, sexually assaulted by the sisters, as I think they're known. Um, yes. the Sort of one of the gangs, essentially, of Shawshank. So, 
I was curious in your experience, you know, this sort of calm, numb demeanor, what, you know, is that something that you have seen a good deal of and what do you make of that? We do see that a lot. You know, some of them are very, are very emotionally sensitive. And then there's ones yeah. who are the really guarded, like flat, blunted affect. You can't get a read out of them. I will say we do have staff who are specifically in charge of assessing everyone's mental health. Yeah, right. And so for someone like, Andy, if he was so, if he was so into like his thoughts and not really getting acclimated to the system at that time, then he would probably be like a red flag. See, like Mm. if he's at risk for acting out or like a suicide risk, something, something for the staff to be mindful about. Yeah, so that's a really uh, interesting point because that is also something that probably didn't exist in the 40s through the 60s, right? This oh, no. idea of we have to check on people. Um, you know, the closest thing we get to checking on people at Shawshank is basically like room shakedowns, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just all in the spirit of finding contraband and, and making sure that people are not, um, you know, essentially doing anything that the prison wouldn't want them to be doing. But we don't see, you know, health checks or, you know, the closest thing I get. I guess is, you know, the, the referred to as the infirmary. So we don't actually see the infirmary as far as I can remember. It's just sort of this place that people disappear to after they experience something really bad, you know, usually a, a beating or uh, an assault. And then they sort of come back sometimes, you know, some period later. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, as you're watching that, um, like, what is your sense? If you had to guess what that, experience look like for them based on what we see of Shawshank what what were they doing in the infirmary for them my idea would probably be you know it's like those old school like world war ii setups where there's like tons of beds and like you see them like resting in each of them it does baffle me that you know back in that first scene where um the inmate who who pretty much cracked first they said it took the the doctor like three days to come and then by the time he came he was he's already dead yeah that doesn't happen and i i would hope back then that wasn't the case but who knows i clearly wasn't born during that era right (laughs) so it was was a really good point because i think you you know certainly i've read pieces especially even now with the covid situation where you know the capacity for um institutions like jails and prisons or even large mental health institutions to care for people who have both physical illness as well as mental illness, you know, that that is, is a, it's a large caseload, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we hear like it took three days for a doctor to come, um, I think some people might say like, oh, like, is it still like that? But you're saying that it's not. Obviously, we're, we're much better at um, consistently assessing most of that stuff. Oh, yeah. We have like a doctor on call. There's like yeah. medical staff 24-7 it's a lot better that's for sure yeah so for when you know if someone was as you said sort of identified as being a risk or sort of having a real flat affect or not sort of checking in in the way that you would expect that's something that you would actively you know seek them out call them in and do an assessment or um or some sort of ongoing care Mm -hmm. and so um like let's say i don't think we had any inmates 
in while they were like in the movie i don't think there were any inmates that were suicidal at the Mm. time but it does i mean the the topic does come up later in the movie but if at least if in current present time if someone were suicidal in the prison then we would have to put them in what we call a safety cell and that's when they're like on a more strict observation making Mm. sure they don't hurt themselves right so how similar is that to what we see at shawshank which is what essentially is solitary confinement oh yes that wow i that scene was very interesting yeah the it's not so much solitary confinement i will say there is a specific ward that each pretty much each cell has one person but it's nowhere where it's nowhere near where like they were shut out from like daylight kept in the dark 24 7 like i i know that was practice back then but Mm -hmm. it's it's obviously inhumane and they don't do that anymore right that would be that would fall under cruel and unusual at this point yeah exactly so at most it's like they're they're um segregated from what they considered like general population or gen pop as we say Mm -hmm. so if they're segregated we make sure that their mental health is assessed every day that's great and and so what is a a daily um sort of check-in like that look like is it just sort of people coming into to your office and you know going through some sort of standard assessment or is it more casual than that um i would say the interaction is casual as we do it in in the ward and for like every uh, medical staff or psych staff there's like one deputy with us for safety mm-hmm. and you know it's a superficial conversation that you have with the inmates see how they're doing any physical mental health concerns um and so within that interaction you could get like 60 seconds in and see like oh um i can get like a ton of information based on how he's talking to me how his room looks like and so it's like those small things that can give you so much info. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, and I think the the info is something that's also an interesting um, sort of pattern we see through the movie. You know, we have guys like Red who are known to be people who can get things, right? And then we have the, um, you know, we have the, the jail guards who obviously know a certain amount. It, it often seems like they have no idea what's happening. Um, especially when we see, um, you know, Andy getting sexually assaulted in parts of the the prison that just seem to have no one around. Um, <laughs> so I'm watching that and I just, you know, and obviously, look, this is, you know, whatever it is, 60, 70 years ago. But it, it always surprises me, even it being at that time, just like, wh- why are why is there anywhere that would not have someone monitoring that space or that's somehow uh, controlled in some way, shape or form? But you know, I guess that's that's just sort of how far we've come, right? Where there is no place, I'm assuming, you know, in your experience where you could be doing something and no one would know what you were doing. Oh, no, no, that's not the case. Like we yeah. have we have the control tower, control seat, right. everything going on through the cameras. And we also like communicate with like the radios. So of course, clear communication, clear visual. It's all there. Yeah, yeah. So that so things like the the sexual assault that Andy experienced are probably less likely to happen. Um, but you know, 
you know, I think people's perception of what can happen in prison is that these sorts of things can and do still happen. So, you know, I know it's a difficult topic, but is this something that, um, you know, what, what's your awareness of these sorts of, of incidents happening um, in prison systems that you've been exposed to? So in the time I've been working with the prison system, and it hasn't been that long, I have not encountered any situations like this, though I will say California has been more progressive and protecting the inmates. For example, there's something called the PREA Act, and that's to ensure the safety of all the inmates, especially those who have been a target of like sexual assault, whether it was whether it be from a staff member or another inmate. And so with with that kind of act, um, the PREA Act, it does put like a little flag on their profile to be like, oh, mm. hey, this is what happened. You need to be mindful about like where you um, where you place this inmate and also like mm. how and like have a specific um, not say demeanor, but just like be mindful of how you how you speak to the inmate. Cause like, you don't want to, you don't want to like trigger something and then it just mm-hmm. snowballs, it just snowballs into something worse. Right. Because you're aware that, that they came into a situation, um, obviously already, you know, um, vulnerable or, 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 you know, dealing with things, just the fact that they're in prison and now for, the, for them to have an experience like this in prison, I have to imagine would just put them so much more on edge. And yet that's we cool. see Andy and I think that's why he's portrayed this way as as if he's just sort of, you know, numb to it happening on what, what's portrayed as multiple occasions. He got numb eventually. I I am kind of surprised on the very first time it happened, like yeah. when they did the, like the next day, next scene, like the look of trauma was not present in his face. Right. Yeah. And then there was, as they kind of show almost like a, 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 supercut of these multiple assaults that he experienced at one point i guess he almost gets killed um and then following that assault uh the sergeant uh hadley uh assaults the person that assaulted andy and that person i think it was his name was boggs one of the sisters um ends up getting transferred to another prison he was um i guess I don't want to say crippled, but like, you know, I don't know if they broke his back or everybody couldn't walk. He was in a wheelchair when they were taking him out. So it's again, mm-hmm. this portrayal of, you know, especially this, uh, this sergeant just sort of having uh, immunity to being able to do whatever he feels is necessary to keep the, the inmates under control. Well, it's not yeah. just that. It also benefited the, the deputies, like the, the guards here. Cause remember, I think yes. that was around the time when Andy was starting to handle the books for all the, That's right. the staff. Yeah. And he had helped that, that sergeant in particular um, with his inheritance getting taxed or not taxed. Um, so yes. So this was at the time when Andy was starting to work his way up, um, you know, you know, in terms of the, the hierarchy of the inmates. And it's interesting because it, I had the, I some, some similarities i worked in an inpatient substance abuse facility and Mm -hmm. there were similarities in terms of the hierarchy of the residents of the community in which case people would have specific jobs um certainly as you work your way up in those positions you get to know the staff members a little bit more Mm -hmm. certainly affords you more privileges so it was interesting for me to see that happening um, in this context 70 years ago um (laughs) we meet andy's um 
library uh, partner, Brooks, uh, Brooks Hatlin. Oh, and Brooks. they start to work together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's going to, we're going to, that's going to go tragic in just a minute here. But, <laughs> but yeah, so we start to see this sort of um, uh, gradual elevation at, that Andy is able to achieve using his, um, you know, his real life skills. So I wanted to ask you, you know, I don't know if you're in your specific experience, if this sort of, you know, inmate hierarchy or jobs thing um, is something that, that is particular to your experience, but it's something that is always fascinating to me in terms of mental health and community structure. And one of the facilities that I work for there, I wouldn't say it's a hierarchy, but the, some of the inmates get more privileges in the sense where they get to work. Um, some right. of them do like the laundry, some of them do um, the, the, the mess hall or I guess the cafeteria. Um, and that's not available for everyone to do. So it's right. something that they have to work their way up towards. And then they also, we also nowadays have, it's almost like a halfway house. Mm-hmm. So people who are like on probation and trying to get reintegrated into society, um, they're, they have like a, like almost yeah it's basically like a halfway house it's connected with the facility and you know they go in and out of the facility work and then they come back and then they still get like their psych um psych physical health services with uh with the prison system so we have come a long way in trying to reintegrate them back into society and it's way different from how it was for for brooks unfortunately yeah yeah, because with Brooks, um, you know, he's in sort of a halfway house, which, you know, was, as far as I'm aware, a pretty new concept back in the 40s and 50s. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Um, but essentially, you know, I hate to use the word abandoned, but it's basically like dropped off in this apartment and it's just like kind of like good luck. Um, mm-hmm. And my experience, and I'm, I'm sure yours is similar, is that there's way more support and monitoring and you know, ongoing care that's now given to inmates to prevent exactly what ends up happening for Brooks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there Brooks is. is paroled in 1954 after serving 50 years in prison, and you know, prior to getting out, to getting parole, he you know essentially threatened to stab someone because he wanted to stay in prison. Um, he was a librarian. He kind of had a a life that made sense to him, I think is one way that sort of red refers to it. Um, so he goes out, he's in the halfway house and because of his really difficult adjustment, um, he does end up hanging himself. So, and you know, we see that and we see him kind of send some letters back to the inmates who are still at Shawshank. And it's another really stark reminder that yes, we're watching this sort of drama play out in this system, but, you know, once they're out of that system, the whole sort of situation changes. So I'm sure you've, well, actually, I don't know, you know, what, what's your experience with recidivism and sort of what, um, or I should say the sort of adjustment, you know, that you've seen as with people getting out of uh, incarceration? You know, it's, it's, I will say it's, it's very hit or miss. You see the ones who are so institutionalized that, Mm -hmm. you know, they're essentially frequent flyers. They constantly come back in. They'll try to do anything like what Brooks is doing to stay in the system because that's the only yeah. thing they know. And then there are those who like pretty much get their act together once they're out of here, but still they need a lot of ongoing support. And so that's what we, the correctional health staff, um, 
we try to do that as much as possible to make sure they have some follow-up care provided to help them get back on track. Yeah, so that that's the the best stuff that's changed, I think, um, from, yeah, totally. from what we see with Shawshank. And I, I have, as I was saying, some experience with that too. The facility that I worked for sort of had a halfway house attached to it or halfway houses that we worked with also. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was... There was nothing like, I mean, if I'm being honest, a sort of graduation of someone that you would be able to work with for a long period of time, three, six months, um, and then knowing that they then succeeded when they got out, whether it was getting a job or, you know, reunited with their family, all that stuff, to, to know that the work that they did while they were incarcerated, or in my case, um, inpatient, was able to translate to continued success. Because I know... For me, it's it is really hard to see, as you said, people being frequent flyers. Just knowing that, you know that that life for them outside of that system is so difficult. And and there's always different reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's in Brooks's case, you know, when you're in somewhere for 50 years, you know, what adjusting to life outside of that is, at least as it was portrayed in the movie, sort of impossible. Because mm-hmm. um, you don't really have anybody. He was sort of trying to be a grocery. Um, you know, bagger. And it's just like, he, this is not a life that made sense to him. So it's really hard. And, and it's funny because I think we could easily kind of transition to the sort of more comical, dramatic parts of this movie. But I think the conversation that we're having is really interesting, especially as it relates to people's experience today. You know, I, I sort of mentioned this as we were talking about preparing for the episode that, um, and this, I, I want to say this as in a lighthearted way as possible. I don't want to sure. certainly compare what we've been what we've been through in quarantine to being in jail um, mm-hmm. or being in prison. But I do think that as people are getting sort of more frustrated and more antsy to get back to normal life, that there's also going to be some frustration that what that normal life or what they thought that was going to be is not necessarily going to be the case. So we have Brooks who doesn't really adjust. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we finally see Red get out and sort of go through some of the similar steps of of Brooks, um, part of the reason he's able to be successful is because he has this sort of anchor in knowing that Red is out. Uh, excuse me, knowing that um, Andy. Andy is out there, right? Mm-hmm. And that sort of concept of an anchor, um, something to return to, someone to return to, I think makes such a difference. Um I will yeah. I will say when when it came time for Red to be released and they went through that scenario when he was standing on the table I immediately thought of Brooks and I'm like oh my god please do not happen again Of course <laughs> Yeah so so we 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 sort of didn't didn't mention this you had actually never seen this movie before No like So this was the first time. time watching for you Yeah mm-hmm. so so, and I'm glad that you mentioned that because one of the other things I was just sort of curious is, so this being a first time watch for you, having had the experience that you've had, what were some of the other things that really jumped out as, as sort of watching this like 70 year old portrayal of, of prison life? I did see a lot of similarities of just like the sense of camaraderie that comes around just mm. I, part of it being like the whole institutionalized process. And it's like, you're just around it. You're around each other. The inmates are around each other for so much that they pretty much end up getting along for the most part that we do have some moments where there's a riot, but has mm-hmm. not happened during my, my shift. Okay. That's good. Um, Oh man, I was like going somewhere with this and now I totally forgot. 
Um, no, I mean, I think you mentioned a great point, which I think is is also something that that ties into what I was talking about, which is the sort of sense of connection of camaraderie mm-hmm. makes such a big difference in people's ability to adjust to any new situation. Especially oh, when talking yeah, about totally. Mental health, right? I mean, um, if you have a a group, you know, I've worked with a lot of people who have been through um, group therapy, uh, and you know. I've worked, as I mentioned, with people with uh, substance abuse issues. So I think that this is part of the reason why AA and things like NA do work for a lot of people. I won't say works for everybody, but when it does work, it's because it creates this sense of community, this sense of belonging to something bigger than yourself. Mm-hmm. And we see that with with Andy and Red and a lot of their other um, friends, really, is what they become, right? Um, I think Red refers to them as that, um, that that's such a cornerstone of what makes them be able to, you know, survive and, and thrive as much as one can. You know, one of the interesting things I wanted to ask you about that growth over time was Andy's library. Yeah. So we see the prison really the whole sort of tone shift. So Andy starts out as the assistant to Brooks. Um, when Brooks get out, gets out, <coughs> excuse me, um, Andy sort of becomes the head librarian and he wants to, get more books in. So he starts writing, I guess, to the Senator. The Senate, yeah. The Senate, right? And after he says six years, they <laughs> finally get like a delivery of books and records and $200. And then he starts writing twice a week and then they get like a yearly donation of books and $500. And mm-hmm. then overnight, we see this sort of prison transform. People are, you know, listening to records and uh, reading books and learning and Andy's helping people, you know, get their GED. And all of a sudden, the sort of, I mean, for me, it, all of a sudden, the place didn't feel as threatening. And one of the questions I have for you is, you know, in your experience, um, what sort of access to that, um, you know, I guess, is it, is it freedom? Is it just um, things that create normalcy, whether it's like a library or music? Like, what benefit do you see that uh, in uh, in terms of the prison system? And, you know, because I have to imagine that that does make such a difference. Even just being able to read books, like the first time oh, we totally. see um, Brooks go through with the, the little book card. It's like, oh, man, I'd be grabbing for books every chance that I could get. And we see, you know, some people kind of take it and some people could kind of leave it. But I will but, yeah, say it's just a fascinating part of the, the, the lifestyle. I will I will say they're they're like tech forward in at least the mm. county prison that I work for like there's I they have some access to computers and even okay. like an iPad um, sure. they have access to like the phones well they you know they used to have like open yard time but since mm-hmm. covid happened oh wow yeah they took they had to take that away cuz um you know, they're, they also try to be mindful of the inmates' health. Um, and this is like an off tangent. And I'm not sure if this has happened in other states, but for California in particular, since COVID happened, um, they actually released a lot of inmates. So, and I apologize, this is like an offside, but it oh, does okay, it, it does pertain to like the overall well-being of the inmates. So mm-hmm. if there's they're trying to release um, pretty much people with non um, non lethal offenses like 
mainly to make sure the prison doesn't get overcrowded. Right, especially during them, a pandemic, yeah. It'll put them more at risk for contracting COVID. So mm-hmm. census, a total side note, but census is at an all-time low mm. because of COVID. Yeah, and you see, you know, people, I guess, concerned or upset about that. But I think we really have to emphasize that, you know, these are in, and I would say most, if not all cases, like nonviolent offenders. Mm-hmm. And it's all happening for you know, the greater good, right? So if we don't continue to, um, you know, expand the risk of, of COVID, you know, and it's already, I think, I read somewhere that it's basically like institutions, unfortunately, and sadly, um, you know, senior homes and senior living situations, and prisons that are the places that have been hardest hit. Mm-hmm. So, so I think we, you know, I think it has to make sense that we're willing to take those actions to protect everyone. And that includes people in the prison. Mm-hmm, totally. Yeah. So it's, you know, and I, I have to imagine, you know, if this had happened in Shawshank 70 years ago, nothing would have changed. And it just would have been whatever happens, happens. Right. Yes, you're all stuck in the. Yeah. Everyone's every man for themselves. I think and it's just crazy to, to think what that would have been like. You know, I did want to point out, um, you you mentioned something about Andy coming in like super guarded, can't get a read out of him. But as you mentioned about the library, he does start to brighten up. He starts yes. having all so these connections. Talking about hope. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they were talking about hope. And then it's weird that his sense of normalcy, in a sense, it almost started crashing down when, who was it, Tommy? Tommy comes in and gives them info like oh yeah there was someone who described this crime that pretty much mirrored what andy was being charged for yes and it's like i feel like that's the point in the movie where you really start seeing annie andy um panic like mm-hmm. more than ever like i could be wrong but tell me what you think about that no i completely agree and i'm, I'm glad that you you brought this up because i think this kind of gets us to the end of the movie right where mm-hmm. um Andy had reached a level of acceptance with his yes, stay there, even if he knew that he did not commit this crime. And I have to, you know, I, I've unfortunately read a lot of stories where this is this is the case for people on death row that um, even if they know that they did not commit this crime, they have to find a way to live. And mm-hmm. sometimes that looks like what we see with Andy, where it's just like, OK, if I'm going to be here and I've you know, sort of exhausted all my options, I'm going to live. So making uh, the best that they can of the situation. But then once Andy realizes that there is a possibility that, you know, this story could come out where he is innocent, that, yeah, then we kind of see him almost reverse go through, um, you know, some of the stages of grief where he gets angry with the warden, um, which unfortunately oh gives gosh. him some consequences. We see him sort of, you know, emotionally struggle with the possibility of, you know, he might have to stay in prison, even though now he knows confirmed that there's something that could get him out. Um, yeah. And from, for, yeah, from that mental health perspective, for sure. Um, he goes from, you know, cool, calm, radical acceptance to all of a sudden, you know, really emotionally struggling with the, the reality of his, his stay there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't, you know, and I, as we said, you know, a lot of the prisoners, um, inmates are going to, say that they didn't do it whether that's the case or not 
but I have to imagine from a mental health perspective that that's a real hard topic to to work with somebody on because you know as as therapists as nurses it's our job to meet our our client or our inmate where they're at so if they say they're not they're not guilty or they're innocent we just I, I mean my impulse is to say okay let's deal with the fact that you're not innocent let's just talk with the fact that about the fact that innocent or not you are here and there's nothing that I can do about the fact that you're here or not so let's just kind of talk about coping with that or what actions that you feel like are realistic to to deal with the the possibility that you are innocent and if and if there are no options then how do we deal with accepting that that's it's just hard it's hard work and i'm not saying for me but it's hard for a person to deal with that level of um you know acceptance or not of their their reality mm-hmm. yeah Oh man, I'm like, see, that's the thing. I was like so excited with this movie and yeah. I could just go on and on about how good it was. I know, was. no, I, I, t- I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it, it's interesting because, so yes, um, and this is sort of where, where it starts to turn, right? It starts to become more of a, a thriller almost. So Tommy, as you, oh as God, you mentioned. Oh my God, Tommy, <laughs> yes. Poor Tommy, um, it, you know, is really working hard on his GED and that as soon as Andy mentions that he essentially might have a story or might have evidence of, of Andy's innocence. Mm-hmm. Tommy is taken out by the warden and, you know, I guess one of the guards basically. Um, so another, you know, gosh, I, I would hope to think just very dramatic and unrealistic thing to happen in this movie. Um, certainly today, these sorts of things would not be going on with the, the warden having a, a, an inmate, essentially launder money for him. <laughs> yeah, no. But that's the situation that we see with Andy. And Andy, after going into solitary confinement for, what does he end up doing? Like two months? He just sort of does a month, then says some more stuff, then does another month? Yeah. And this is when we really see Andy start to break. Um, you know, you're in solitary, as you said, with essentially no daylight, a sort of little window for them to check on him. And then... Um, he sort of goes back to just sort of, at least from what we can see, uh, trying to accept his stay. Yeah, he, you do see like that spark in his personality. It just, it, it it's almost like way, not even at the time when he came in, it's almost like he, he's a lot worse than before. I think part oh, yeah. of it, part of it was like the solitary confinement. The other part was like knowing that like Tommy, his ticket out. Yeah. was um is no longer there and who was it I, it was that conversation with red that pretty much helped they were i think that was the one where they were talking about hope and how they were able to keep mm-hmm. it intact I, oh my gosh i think like that part of the movie it does get a little like cliche yes <laughs> but i and see that's the thing it was hard for me to switch between like watching it like mm-hmm. as like any other viewer versus like me watching it with like a nursing perspective it was so good either way <laughs> well so this is a, this is a good point too because and and we haven't talked enough about red and i think I, i'm with you oh. probably do a whole season <laughs> of a podcast on on this movie alone but um red actually takes the conversation about hope as a reason to be worried about andy it, yes yes and I think this is this is sort of a good place for us to kind of work towards our the end of our conversation today because, you know, my impulse as a therapist is always to hang on reasons for hope and to sort of instill hope and to find, you know, ways to to help um, the people that I work with, 
you know, find a place, if not hope, at least of acceptance. And I think with, with Red, seeing how much Andy went through, the fact that he was then sort of crazy-eyed talking about hope, and then, you know, later on asking a fellow inmate for uh, six feet of rope, that Red was probably justifiably worried. Yeah, no, I don't blame you. It's funny that you mentioned how you... How you, how you as a therapist talk about hope with the inmates, it's conversations like that that I'm unable to do because... Yeah, I, I, that's like, what I was going to ask, yeah. Because I, I have to focus on what's going on right then and there, their health concerns, anything pertaining to, like, you know, when am I going to get out of here or, like... The future, even, right? Yeah, it's like at that point, it's just out of my scope because, like, I'm not a lawyer or it's like I can't... Of course. I can touch bases on like the mental health stuff, but then they do need follow up with like a therapist or our psychiatrist on site. So yeah, so it's interesting that you brought that up. Now go ahead. Go yeah. Ahead. So yeah, no, I was going to ask you. So from a mental health perspective, how would you describe your work with the inmates? Sort of what is the the goal? Obviously, of other than just sort of helping them cope. What is you know? So I do you know cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectic behavioral therapy. Um, what sort of um, interventions do you feel like are, are most helpful in the inmates that you work with? Let's see. We do have what we call forensic mental health, FMH. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who do the check-ins, the psych check-ins. And we also have our psychiatrist who prescribes the um, all the psych meds, anti-anxiety, sure. you name it. And then my role as the nurse is one make sure they get their medications. If they need to speak to anyone from FMH, I make sure to facilitate that. So I'm kind of like, yeah, I'm typically like the middle person. That's typically how nurses are, but we help connect them with services. Oh, of course. And I, but, and, and even that, uh, that role, I'm sure you're often doing a lot of sort of like mental health triaging. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, it's, it's also like from our assessments and from um, anything the deputies tell us, like, yeah. hey, this person might be grieving over the death of a loved one. This one has been mm-hmm. having some anxiety or this one's been acting off for quite some time. So then, yeah, we typically are the first line, like the first, um, any mental health or um, physical concerns. We're typically the first people that, um, that interact with the inmate and see what's going on. And so we do have our own set of protocols, like if they're suicidal, okay, you need to do X, Y, and Z, notify the deputies, make sure the person is in the safety cell, and then make sure there's follow-up, stuff like that. Yeah, sure. And and look, that's that's incredible incredible work that, that is absolutely necessary because just for people like Andy and Red to have that first-line person to exist would have made such a difference, I'm sure, oh, um, yeah. in managing their experience at Shawshank. So I'm grateful for people like you that that knowing that, you know, when I have had people that have been incarcerated or coming out, knowing that that people like you are there to help them through that experience, because it's just uh, it's it's a unique one, you know. Whether you agree with um, you know the sort of incarceration system that we have in place or not, um, it is a reality, right? So it's something that we have to help people um, navigate as best they can. No, of course. And then, you know, as you said, we we pretty much take it at face value and we have to like any other crimes that they've committed, like it 
we have to look at them as a person, not like as a criminal. And you've touched, you've touched bases on that on based on your personal experience as a therapist. So I appreciate that you acknowledge that. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, I was, as I was thinking about this, you know, I've actually only physically been to a prison on one or two occasions to um, pick up people to, to come back to the inpatient facility. So, you know, even just those very um, isolated experiences, you do get a sense of, you know, this person is coming out of a traumatic experience, even if it's just, you know, I had to stay in one place for X number of days, months, or years. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I, I, yeah, it's, it's so important, you know, the work that you're doing out there. And, and I appreciate that. And, you know, I think, you know, as we wrap up, obviously, the happy ending to this very uh, intense movie is that uh, Andy escapes. You know, I guess, unbeknownst to us, he had, as soon as he got his little rock um, hammer, he had been digging a very long hole out of his, out of his cell for 19 or 20 years. Yeah. Digs through a, 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 I guess, like some kind of refuse pipe, um, 500 feet to freedom, I think Red says. Um, and look, I mean, it's, it's this portrayed is this very triumphant moment. Um, and I guess in 1960s, you know, they wouldn't necessarily find somebody. I have to imagine, you know, that not only are escapes much less common now, but that the likelihood of someone being caught after escape is, is equally as, uh, likely. So, you know, I, I don't know where to go from there, but but Andy and, and Red ultimately reunite in. I'm going to actually challenge you to say the place in Mexico first, and then I'll say it after you. It's funny because I was, I was just thinking like, oh, the, the place that they went to, was it yes. <laughs> Zihuatanejo? Oh, that is very good. <laughs> I'm not even going to try to replicate that because that, that I'm just looking at the word and I'm like, yeah, no, you, you, you get it. So well done. Um, they reunite there on that uh, Mexican coastal town and happily ever after. Right. I mean, Red was in incarcerated for, was it 30, 40 years? It was definitely more than Andy. I don't remember exactly how long he ended up being there. I want but... to say 40. I think 50 is a yeah. stretch, but definitely at least 30. Yes. Um, and, and so Red, you know, finds the package that Andy left for him and they reunite in this island. Then we're just supposed to, you know, they live heavily ever after, but, and, and you know this, and now I'm worried we're going to go on a whole other conversation, but <laughs> the getting out of, of prison for a lot of people is just the start of the mental health work. Oh yes. Getting, uh, getting back into society and yeah. you, you see the culture shock. And so yes. that's where, um, we, we, at least in my county, we do have the services to help reconnect the inmates to whatever services they need out, um, like in the community, try to help yeah. them integrate into society. And we, we do see them for quite a while. And, they're, and you know, we're there for, for them for how, however long they need us. Yeah. So, so let's hope that Red and Andy, you know, as they form their little bed and breakfast on the island, oh, you know, got themselves <laughs> some help to cope with whatever uh, reoccurring trauma they, they are likely still, you know, coping with to a certain degree as, as any of us would. Um, well, Abigail, I'm going to stop us there because I think you and I both agree that we could talk about this movie for much longer. Seriously. So, um, <laughs> so, so I want to say thank you so much, but, but before we go, um, I'm just going to humor the, the ratings. I'm going to assume um, this is the, because this is the first time that you, 
have some specific thoughts about whether or not you like the movie. Um, on a mental health perspective, um, I normally rate it on that, but because you are much more the expert in sort of prison system, um, I'm going to let you rate it on a scale both of sort of accuracy as well as how much you liked it, and then I'll do mine. Okay, well, how much I liked it, it's an easy, easy like five out of five Zihuatanejos. It was Wonderful. just so, so good. Um, mental health, uh, nursing-wise, oh, it's so hard to say. Right, um, I guess we could say uh, appropriate to the age, appropriate to the time. <laughs> I know, right, not, appropriate to the yeah. time. I think in reference to the time, I would say probably like a four out of five. It was, sure. It's pretty spot on. But I wish I wish you could always more. Unfortunately, yeah. But, yeah. you know, there's only so much the movie could cover. Yes. Yeah. And, and so my rating is not going to surprise anyone. Um, this was a five out of five Jake the Crows. Um, <laughs> I just, I just loved um, that first scene when Andy, you know, finds the little, like, I think it's a maggot in whatever food he's Oh my God, served. yes. And, and you see uh, Brooks ask him if he's going to eat it. And my first, I, I couldn't remember the scene. I was like, oh my God, does Brooks eat the maggot? But That's then, what I was no, thinking he too. pulls out he pulls out his his jacket and he's got a little crow, crow that he's rehabilitating and I'm like oh my god this is I love this movie so much so uh, <laughs> yeah five out of five Jake the Crows Jake's the Crow um, and yes this is this is a wonderful movie deservedly of its I think ninety eight or ninety nine percent on Rotten Tomatoes um, <laughs> unfortunately it came out of in a year surrounded by um, Forrest Gump and um, something else big came out that year too. Pulp Fiction. So it really it did not get the attention it deserved. But now it really I think it has. Yeah. So yeah. So so kudos to uh, everyone involved with the Shawshank Redemption, and kudos to you. Thank you so much for for joining me and reaching out to me, Abigail. If anyone wants to do what Abigail did, please reach out to me on Twitter, on Facebook um, at Popsych One Hundred One. I would love to talk with any one of you about any. Uh, movie, television show, book, or personal expertise, as as we were happy to have Abigail um, with on the show today. So thank you, Abigail, once again. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Anything you want to plug? I, I always offer my uh, my guests the opportunity, whether they have they want anything they want to plug or not, or just any messages for the audience. Any messages? You know, in lieu of what's going on right now. Really yes, don't, don't hesitate to reach out to anyone. It could be like a neighbor. It could be a friend. Um, I know it's a little bit tricky with the current political atmosphere right now, but there are people in local law enforcement who are trained to Absolutely. handle these kinds of cases. So I wouldn't necessarily reject the idea of like reaching out calling 911 to do like a mental health ch check or just you know reaching out for support like there's a lot of stuff available i couldn't have said it better myself thank you so much abigail and um thank you all for listening and we will talk to you next week mm -hmm.